Well, let's turn again to the book of Hebrews and the fourth chapter this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 4, and verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And let us pray. Father, thank you for just the gathering of the saints. I, I thank you for the, the, the joy and just the, the preciousness of fellowship, being able to, to be together and, and sing songs of praise and adoration. I thank you for each one that is here. I, I pray the, just the, the effect of, of, of singing and praising would be to uh, hearten and edify and strengthen our souls, increase our, our love for thee and our delight in thee and our devotion to thee. And, Father, as we would look at this section of your holy revelation, I would pray again for the help of your Holy Spirit um, during these moments together that you would give me a facility and you would give me clarity of thought and to convey your word in a way that is honoring to thee and in a way that is truly uh, helpful and edifying to the, to the souls of each one that is here and so I, I pray that you would just work very signally and clearly in our hearts for your honor and your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day morning, our emphasis was on verses 8 through 11. And the theme was entering God's rest. And we noted the important thing is not simply knowing about the reality of God's rest, but entering it ourselves and experiencing that for the good of our own souls. And sought to bring that out on the one hand by showing that it's a spiritual rest. Although the rest we read about in the Old Testament was literal and it was temporal, it was symbolic of a, of a rest that is spiritual and eternal, which is to say the experience of rest in Canaan was only a, a type or symbol of the complete rest that God intended for his people. And we thought that mindset was exhibited uh, in the life of Abraham from Hebrews 11. Uh, by faith, he, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And we also endeavored to show that it was a, a glorious rest. This, this term Sabbath rest stresses the, the, the special aspect of a festivity and joy expressed in the adoration and the praise of the being of God. So it, it involves a joy in worship that is unknown to the world. It's unknown to those who are not the children of God through faith in the person of Christ. And we, we brought out there, there's a sense in which this rest is entered and enjoyed in some measure when a person comes to Christ and enjoys communion with his holy person, and then even more gloriously so when one departs and is with Christ. And ultimately, the richest, purest expression of this will be when the Lord returns in conjunction with the inception of the new heavens and the new earth. And then we notice the, the right response to the nature and the glory of this rest is found in verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. 
That is the disobedience of the wilderness generation who failed to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. So that reveals the frame of mind that is necessary in, in the living of the Christian life, which was modeled by the Apostle Paul himself. It involves diligence. Uh, he wrote about himself in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, then when you arrive at verses 12 and 13, I think a helpful comment from the ESV Study Bible, the warning continues, Faithless disobedience will not go unpunished. And then a bit more expansively, uh, Bust M. Fanning in another study Bible. These two verses go together, <clears throat> and they, they tell why we need concentrated effort and conclude the whole section beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1 on the need to respond faithfully when we hear God's message because it comes from God who sees and knows all. It has penetrating authority to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Outward appearance will not suffice when we must give an account to God. So the reason why this warning in this word of God needs to be heeded is because it is God's word which searches the inner recesses of our being and it's to this God that we must all give an account. So the motivation for putting into practice the mandate of verse 11 is the character of God's word. It's searching, probing character and also the character of the God of the word that is brought out in verse 13. So this morning really as a, a motivation for committing ourselves to a rich, deep, ongoing relationship with Holy Scripture, I want you to consider the character of God's Word under three different headings. The character of God's Word under three different headings. First of all, I, I need to take a moment for the identification or clarification of the, the phrase Word of God. There are some, as you know, who believe it's a reference to the person of Christ, who is identified as the Word in the first chapter of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh. So Jesus clearly was the Word in John chapter 1. So there it's a, it's a title of Jesus understood as um, God's ultimate communication of truth about himself. He's the pure expression of the being of God. And if one takes it that way, then verse 13 would more, more likely be a reference to the person of Christ. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And it must be affirmed that, that all the attributes that are attributed to the word in verse 12 can also be attributed to the person of Christ. And the fact that he's referenced as high priest in the following verses lend credence to that understanding. And what makes it worse for me is that's the way that John Owen understood it. And he's kind of a quasi-hero of mine. I really appreciate his writings. So it's clearly a legitimate way of taking it. And if you do, um, that's very understandable. Now, I am persuaded it has fundamental, fundamental reference not to the person of Christ, but to the, the word, either the written or the spoken word of God. And I do so especially for two reasons. First of all, it's just the power of the flow of the context leading up to verses 12 and 13. Uh, beginning, uh, the section beginning really back in chapter 3 and verse 7, 
Um, in these verses, the repeated keynote is reference to the Old Testament scriptures as an incentive to obedience to the word of God. Don't live like the wilderness generation who disobeyed the word of God. In chapter 3 and verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then in verse 15, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, uh, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And then in chapter 4 and verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And then verse 7, uh, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So there's repetitive reference to the word. Um, as one put it, the unit beginning in chapter 3 and verse 7, it's brought to a brief and vigorous conclusion in, in verses 12 and 13, where the writer provides a supporting reason for the diligence enjoyed in verse 11, God's word whose sanctions were imposed so effectively upon the Exodus generation, is performative today and confronts the Christian community with the same alternatives of rest and wrath. Those who remain insensitive to the voice of God in Scripture may discover that God's word is also a lethal weapon. So this is... Um, further incentive, it seems to me, to put into practice the, the diligence that is enjoined in verse 11. It's the character and the nature of God's word that is brought out in verse 12, and the character of the God with whom we have to do that is brought out in verse 13. As Philip Hughes says, the logical connection indicated by the conjunction for between the verse and what proceeds lies in the consideration that disobedience mentioned as the condition of the previous verse involves the notion of disobedience to a word that has been spoken to express the will of the speaker, in this case, God. The word of God in particular can never be disobeyed with impunity precisely because it is the word of God, whose speaking cannot be idle and without effect. So the clear allusion, one writes, to the folly of Israel at Kadesh in disregard of God's oath and warning of Moses indicates that the expression, the word of God, must have specific reference to the text of Scripture cited so extensively in chapter 3, verse 7, down through chapter 4 and verse 11. That there's repetitive reference to the word, that is from Psalm 95, in which the living, piercing word of God addresses this generation in a critical fashion and poses as the only alternative to faithlessness the option of death. So I, I found the force of the context leading up to this text to be compelling in taking this phrase as a reference to God's spoken or God's written word. And then secondly would be the uniform usage of the phrase itself, word of God. William Hendricks had indicated the phrase word of God occurs at least 39 times in the New Testament and almost exclusively it's the designation for the spoken or written word of God rather than the son of God. There's three more occurrences of the phrase in the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 6 and verse 5 have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. There's another reference in chapter 11 and verse 3 about the world's being prepared by the word which was clearly the spoken word of God. Hebrews 13 7, remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you. I, I actually briefly, I, I underscored briefly, looked at all 39 or so references um, and, and it's um, 
especially used in terms to the word of God that is proclaimed. The only reference I found where there was a clear reference to the person of Christ was Revelation 19.13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. So there clearly is presented as a title of the Lord Jesus. So the, the fourth, excuse me, the force of the context and the uniform usage of the phrase in the New Testament indicates, at least to my own thinking, it has regards to the written or the spoken word of God. F.F. Bruce summarizes it well. God is not to be trifled with. His word cannot be ignored with impunity, but must be received in faith and obeyed in daily life. God's today has arrived. Let us take his word seriously and make haste to enter his rest. For God's word which fell in disobedient ears in the wilderness and which has been sounded out again in these days of fulfillment is not like the word of man. It is living, effective, and self-fulfilling. It diagnoses the condition of the human heart. And then third, under this um, first heading, just a, a brief thought. Um, the word as a, a written um, or spoken disclosure of God's will here, the, the, the accent, I, I think it's on the word of God as it relates to judgment. In this particular section, it's on the word of God, not exclusively, but as it relates to judgment. And I say that because verse 11 ends with a, a, a note of warning, and then verse 13 speaks of the God with whom we have to do, and then the text itself uses the language of uh, the, the word of God as a sword. Uh, William Lane wrote, the, the word of God poses a judgment uh, that is more threatening and sharper than any double-edged sword because it exposes the intentions of the heart and renders one defenseless before God's scrutinizing gaze. So, first place, having established at least my own understanding as to the import of the phrase, the word of God, before we get to our, our, our second point, let me offer just two uh, brief comments about the structure of the text itself, kind of pulling here from B.F. Westcott. He makes the point that you have five successive epithets applied to, that is descriptive terms, applied to the term word, uh, that with increasing clearness reveal its power to deal with the individual soul. And those, those five descriptive terms would be living, and then active, then sharper, then piercing, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, and then judge, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the second thing, just in, in terms of progression, there, there's movement in the text itself from the general to the particular. There's a general description, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and then more particularly, because it is sharp, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and then further, once it, once it arrives at its destination, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So in light of that, in the second place, I would bring your mind to the character of God's word as that which accomplishes its purpose or intentions. The character of God's word as that which accomplishes its purpose and intentions. Which is to say the word of God is always effectual in accomplishing its ends. And this is brought out by the force of two terms here, living and active. And this is how we are to think about the scriptures, that living and active. And if we just take them in order, this first term living, which is actually the first word in the Greek sentence and therefore receives the emphasis. And it really should receive the emphasis in our minds too. We should think of the Bible as the living and active word of God. Uh, it, that means the word of God, it's like God himself Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, uh, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. 
in Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, of the living God. We, we are born again, we are regenerated by the, by the living God, by the word of the living God being applied to our soul. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. It is through the living and abiding word of God. It's understandable, therefore. Uh, there are verses in the Psalms which indicate that the word of God has a reviving effect upon the soul. Psalm 119, Hear my voice according to thy loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to thine ordinances. Revive to have life, to sustain life, to be restored to life. Psalm 119, 107. I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to thy word. Psalm 119, 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to thy word. This asking of God to revive one's soul according to his word presupposes here a condition of my soul cleaves to the dust. Many commentators see this as either a, an apprehension of approaching death or the psalmist is deploring his own corruptions, his sinfulness before God. William Plummer, in his great work on the, on the psalm, says the, the two thoughts can be united. He says, what, what's more common than such a record as this? I'm filled with shame and sorrow for my sins, afflictions upon me. My life itself is in danger. Without early relief, I cannot sustain my sorrows, but must sink into the grave. So the request in this condition is, revive me according to thy word, or in live in my soul, enliven my soul according to the word. The word of God is, is living. It's like God himself. Therefore, it has a strengthening, vivifying effect upon the soul. Well, secondly, it's effectual because it is active. It is living, but it's also active or powerful. And the sense here is effective or in producing or capable of producing an intended effect. Um, Hebrews, according to Hebrews 11.3, it is the word of God by which the world was created. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And as you might recall, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1, 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Accomplish, that is to put something into effect uh, entirely or thoroughly. And, and Jeremiah, in terms of being effectual, Jeremiah 23, 29, it's not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and, and like a hammer which shatters the rock, as one noted, it, it's the hammer that shatters the the, the sinful heart. Uh, some of you know a few weeks ago, oh, we had at least a part of our driveway um, re-poured. It was getting pretty rough, and my, my son-in-law Nathan did a great job on that. And uh, the day before he poured the concrete, he came and had to break up the old concrete. Uh, now, he didn't show up with a baseball bat to do that. I mean, you could hit a home run with a baseball bat. But if you try to break up concrete, the only thing that's going to break is the, is the bat, right? Or maybe your back. But rather, he used a jackhammer, and that did a really good job. It broke up all the concrete for the, for the following day. And the idea here is the word of God breaks the sinful heart, and it prepares it to respond positively to the gospel. Paul indicated that he was not ashamed of the gospel. He calls it the power of God unto salvation. Why is the gospel the power of God into salvation? Because it's a word. 
It is a word from God. It's a word about God's character. It's a word about our own character, our own depravity. It's a word about the nature of repentance, about the nature of faith, about the truth of judgment, about heaven and hell. It's powerful because it is a word from God. So it's effectual. So in the first place, the character of God's word is that which accomplishes its purposes and intentions. And then in the second place, actually this is the third place, but I would have you see the character of God's word as that which permeates the deepest recesses of the soul. It permeates the deepest recesses of the soul. It is uniquely and exclusively qualified to do that. If you take of the, the, the force of the words collectively, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, you get a sense of the incomparable power of God's word to penetrate into the deepest recesses of, of the human heart. We are aware and we believe that there's nowhere to hide from God geographically. He's fully, fully present in all places at all times. But here it brings out, you can't hide or conceal in your soul any motive or any intention or any plan from God. One commentator wrote, the general meaning is clearly that the active power of God's word reaches into the inmost recesses of human existence to lay bare and to judge, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. So under this heading, if we just look at these phrases consecutively, it is, it, we're, we're told it's sharper than a two-edged sword, um, which indicates swords are sharp, but nothing as sharp as this. The sense is... Um, made with a, a thin edge or sharp point suitable for cutting or piercing. And, and I think here it's, it's the vivid imagery of, of a sword that is used in battle that impresses on our minds or on our senses how effectual the word of God is. The description gives, a, as one wrote, the, the hearers a visceral feeling of the sharp penetrating power of the sword. And the word translated sword is often used for a knife or a dagger shorter than what is normally implied by the English word sword. Just to kind of give you a sense of this from the Old Testament. Let me read to you from Judges chapter 3. It says, when the sons of Israel gathered to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute to him by Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length. And he found, excuse me, he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all, the, all who attended him left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right hand, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And refuse came out. Well, there's some literal vivid imagery that helps us to get some sense of the, the piercing power of God's word to cut to the, the deepest recesses of the soul. Kind of kind of a, a sidelight here. It's interesting to note 
In extra biblical literature, this term was used for uh, a knife that a surgeon employed, um, which kind of fits in with the language of the division to the joints and the marrow. But the, the next phrase, piercing, as far as the division of soul and spirit. Pierces, it's to pass on through, often overcoming resistance. And then division is the act or process of uh, separating in, into parts or portions. The soul and spirit are, are very close in meaning. Um, a soul is the immaterial, excuse me, invisible part of man's spirit, uh, wind or breath. So the spirit is, is like the wind, invisible, immortal, excuse me, immaterial and, and powerful. They're, they're very close as I indicated in meaning. I think the point here is to emphasize that there's no place, there's no secret alcove or, or nook hidden in the heart that shields from the effects, the, the searching effects from the Holy Scripture. The, the joints are the point where bones connect and marrow, the fatty network of connective tissue that fills the cavities of bone, sometimes, sometimes considered, one writer put it, as an innermost part of a person. For the ancients, marrow deeply hidden inside the bone served metaphorically for that which um, was most intimate in the body of a person. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Judge is the idea of, of careful evaluation. That's what the word is able to do. So William Lane writes, the discrimination of the heart's thoughts and intentions entails a, a sifting process that exhibits the penetrating and unmasking, unmasking potency of the word. The word of God possesses a judgment that is more threatening and sharper than any double-edged sword because it exposes the intentions, one's intentions of the heart and renders one defenseless before God's scrutinizing grace great gaze. So the Word of God has the capability of this, this relentless, exhaustive, searching out every nook and cranny of the soul. There's no place for a rogue motive or intention to hide anywhere at all. So let me, um, in light of that, suggest to you two concluding thoughts. In light of the, the character of the Word, just two, uh, others may come to your mind, but two concluding thoughts. Number one, it's the declaration and communication of the Word of God that is especially effective in bringing lost souls to Christ. It's the hammer that shatters a rock. You remember Peter, he was near the end of a sermon on the day of Pentecost, and we read in Acts 2, 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Well, what did they hear? What did they hear? What pierced them to the heart? The answer is the word of God. And it was a convicting word that showcased their complicity in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, that they felt the danger of their plight and their condition. They wanted to know what they should do. And it's the word of God that is living and active and pierces to the deepest retreats of the soul that affected such a response. It's the word of God that did the work in their souls that led them ultimately to the person of Christ. And then a, a, a second concluding thought. Uh, the Word of God is living um, with its power to search and, and judge the motives of the heart. It's uniquely designed, therefore, to help you and I as believers to keep a good conscience before God and men. And what I'm arguing here is the scriptures, because they have this unique power to search out and evaluate the character of your intentions and my intentions and deliberations of the heart. Therefore, they're uniquely fitted to help us to keep 
a good conscience before God and men, which is absolutely imperative in living the Christian life. You have to have a good conscience. But the question is, how do I keep a good conscience before God? What I'm arguing here is the character of the word that searches so deeply into the recesses of our soul is very helpful in helping us in this particular endeavor. Paul speaks of, of this priority in his own life. Uh, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, Acts 23.1, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And then he says in Acts 24.16, in view of this, I, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, it speaks of, of those who have a seared conscience. But Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And, and Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So there's no doubt. We know we have to keep a good conscience. The, the question is, how do we do that? Especially knowing our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. How do we keep a good conscience? But what I'm arguing for here is that a deep, growing, rich relationship with Holy Scripture because it has this function of searching out the deepest recesses of the soul and the intentions of the thoughts and the heart is a, a, a great help to keeping a good conscience before God and before men. Let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you this morning for the time together. We thank you for holy scripture. We thank you that it is living. We thank you that it is active. We, we thank you for this description of it. I, I pray the effect, the result of considering the nature and the character of your holy revelation would help all of us to deepen our, our love for the Bible, our interaction with Holy Scripture. Might we know increasingly um, the reality of the devotional assimilation of your, your blessed word, which is able to, to strengthen us and hearten us and help us. So I, I just pray that you would make the appropriate application to our souls for your honor and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.